this is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Zoketsu Norman Fisher about his 2019 book, The World Could Be Otherwise, Imagination and the Bodhisattva Path. More prescient than Fisher could have known when he wrote it, the book offers an imaginative approach to spiritual practice in difficult times through the Buddhist teaching of the six paramitas or perfections, qualities that lead to kindness, wisdom, and an awakened life. Fisher points out that in frightening times, we wish the world could be otherwise. With a touch of imagination, it can be. Imagination helps us see what's hidden, and it shape-shifts reality's roiling, twisting waves. In this inspiring reframe of a classic Buddhist teaching, Zen teacher Norman Fisher writes that the paramitas, or six perfections, generosity, ethical conduct, patience, joyful effort, meditation, and understanding, can help us reconfigure the world we live in, ranging from our everyday concerns about relationships, ethics, and consumption, to our artistic inspirations and broadest human yearnings, Fisher depicts an imaginative spiritual practice as a necessary resource for our troubled times. So Ketsu Norman Fisher is an American poet, writer, and Soto Zen priest, teaching and practicing in the lineage of Shunru Suzuki. He is a Dharma heir of Sojin Mel Weitzman, from whom he received Dharma transmission in 1988. Fisher served as co-abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center from 1995 to 2000, after which he founded the Everyday Zen Foundation in 2000, a network of Buddhist practice group and related projects in Canada, the United States, and Mexico. Fisher has published more than 25 books on poetry and nonfiction, as well as numerous poems, essays, and articles in Buddhist magazines and poetry journals. We spoke with Fisher previously on The Mystical Positivist about an earlier book, Training in Compassion, Zen Teachings on the Practice of Lojong. Norman Fisher, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Nice to be here again. Well, it's great to have you, and I uh, really enjoyed um, The World Could Be Otherwise. I actually read it last year, well before our current uh, pandemic circumstances uh, were present. But um, So before we get into our discussion, I think I'd like to start off by just asking how you're doing, um, and and then I'm, I'm going to make some comments about the ironic title, or or suddenly ironic title in this in the situation that we're in. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm doing fine. Uh, you know, I do a lot of uh, I have a lot of uh, Dharma groups up and down the Pacific uh, Coast, so I do a lot of traveling to those groups and other places. And I'm on the airplane a lot. Well, I'm not on the airplane now. I'm not going anywhere. So it's actually been, in a way, quiet for me and nice to be quiet. I'm doing a lot more studying and a lot more reading and writing. Um, and uh, I'm married for a long time, and my wife is here too. So, um, you know, we're having a pretty good time and taking care of ourselves. And so for us, 
it's okay, but of course you are plugged into the news and you're aware of uh, what's happening in other parts of the world with other people. And so I'm actually um, pretty worried about the aftermath of this and the, the poor way that it's been handled and all the deaths and all the illnesses and all the fear and people becoming unhinged and all of that. So it's all there in my mind every day as usual. So in a way for me, you know, it's not that different because I don't have an office I go to. Uh, I, I usually am like living as a hermit except when I go out to do an event or get on a plane. So I'm not doing that, but day to day, it's pretty much as it always is. Uh, and I'm feeling okay, more or less. Well, I got it. Um, I'm wondering if I've, we've been hearing, we're in contact with a lot of practitioners and teachers from different uh, traditions and organizations. And some people have been pointing to the utility of something like Zoom, which of course we're using right now uh, for this conversation. Um, and I'm wondering if you've, um, you've been able to continue some of your teaching uh, activities through um, the internet like that, or is that something that you have not, not done? No, no, we're doing that. We're, we're doing, basically we've moved our regular schedule onto Zoom. So yeah, I'm doing my Dharma seminar and tomorrow we're going to have an all day sit on Zoom. So yeah, I am, I am doing that and I'm doing podcasts and other kinds of uh, appearances. So yeah, it's, it's lots of stuff online. Just, just one additional sort of question before we get into the book, which is um, we have, we're, we've created a, uh, uh, personally created a, a Zoom conversation, weekly Zoom conversation with practitioners from a bunch of different traditions. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that came up with two of the folks um, last Sunday when we had the, that conversation was that people are saying, reporting, that when they, they sit with people in physical proximity and do and meditate, um, they're noticing a difference between when they sit with people on Zoom, that it's different than sitting alone. It's different than sitting with a group of people where you're physically um, uh, in the same room or space. And it's, um, uh, they're reporting something different. And I'm wondering if you've experienced anything like that. Mm -hmm. Sure, I have. Yeah, uh, one one of my friends uh, said to me that uh, he was saying that he did a class in center uh, before the Zen Center closed. So um, anyway, he, he said that he gave a class in, a, in a, a space, and people were then having to be six feet apart from each other, which meant that they were way way spread out. Mm -hmm. So he was in a room. Let's say there were fifty people. But that 50 people, the people in the back were very far away and you could have no sense of their presence. Well, a couple of weeks later, he did the same class on Zoom and then every face was right up front, right? Right. You could see, you could see every face so that he said that in a way, being on Zoom was more personal and more intimate than uh, hmm. a person when people were so far spread apart. So that's true too. You know, I, I've seen that. You really, you can look into everybody's face on Zoom in a way that you can't uh, in person when you're in a room with 50 people. So uh, it is, it is different, um, and it does have the advantage, which is a major advantage of uh, 
allowing people from very far away to participate. So in, in our groups, there's a big emphasis, emphasis on um, long-standing relationships and practicing together over time. So we tend to have, you know, smaller groups and the same people more or less all the time. It's, you know, always new people coming, people going. But when people go, like they move away or for some reason are unable to come anymore, we really miss them. Well, now there's a, a handful of people from all over the world who are part of our Sangha but have moved away who uh, could not come to the Dharma seminar before and now they're able to come. Now, we always record the seminar, so it's always been online. So they've been able to stay in touch, you know, over the years by listening every week. But it's not the same to listen as it is to be able to be present on Zoom and be able to see people and talk to people. So I can talk to them now, right, on Zoom. I can say, how you doing? And, you know, and see their faces. Uh, so it actually has advantages. And I think that um, when this is over and we return to face-to-face -face meetings, I think we're all going to return to them with a different sense. We're going to want some of the advantages that Zoom Mm -hmm. yeah. so I don't know how what we're going to do, but I think we'll do things differently. I'm sure this is true for for everybody. But let me ask you how you two are doing. I mean, you ask how I'm doing. How about you? How are you doing? <laughs> well, we're doing we're doing it. Stuart is working uh, from home because uh, he has the kind of job that allows him to do that. I'm uh, we I run our uh, a spiritual bookstore and tea shop in Sebastopol um, and. During this period, I'm, I'm, everyone else, including myself, has been furloughed. All the employees have been furloughed, but I've been going in and donating, donating my time four hours a day, six days a week to do curbside pickup and mail order, which, which is a, you know, it's like 10% of the sales. What, of what they were, but um, it helps. It, it helps. It, it helps. It, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see how the world unfolds in the aftermath of, of of all of this because i don't know if walk-in stores uh are going to be quite you know are people going to go back to the way things were is it going to be completely different you know yeah i'm not sure what that's going to look like well uh at some point this virus will be finished there'll be a vaccine there'll be treatment and then it'll be over but that could be quite a while. So yeah. until, until it's entirely over, I think there'll be a degree to which people will not want to return to, you know, concerts and restaurants and public transportation and Dharma events and that sort of thing. Especially people who are older, like myself. Yeah. Uh, maybe people will go. They'll declare the country open for business, but I won't feel like getting on an airplane. I think until this is really over. Yeah, it may it may take a while uh, and. <clears throat> which which means that we probably have to reinvent some of the ways that we get together using these uh, new electronic means. And it, it's it's interesting because it is, is it's definitely different to be physically present with someone and something's transmitted in that presence that isn't transmitted yeah. Yeah. electronically, even though this is vastly greater than what we're doing now than like a, a simple telephone. Mm -hmm. Yes. The other, the other point that I think uh, uh, bears making here is that um, I, from the way you were describing 
your Zoom meetings, you know, with with the various Sangha folks, um, probably you know most of those people already from being in physical proximity. If if people are creating new habits around coming together in different ways for you know meditation and various dharma talks and whatnot, um, when it's new people who haven't been who you haven't been present with and they haven't been present with you, how's that going to affect things? That, that's a, a, a question that I have. Yeah, yeah. As you know, in, in Soto Zen, especially we follow Dogen very closely mm-hmm. in, our, in our tradition, and Dogen makes a major point about face-to-face practice. Mm. So I thought, when, I, when I started Everyday Zen, you know, I started it in the Internet, era about 20 years ago now and I did see that uh, having a website and the ability to record Dharma talks that would be easily available to people anywhere mm-hmm. that would be a way to create a new kind of a community so that you didn't have to be living in the same place or even nearby you could have a sense of community by using the internet and an airplane because because uh, I didn't want to have an online community. I wanted to have a face-to-face community. I really, I really think that's important. But if you can get on an airplane and do a retreat somewhere, then you can see everybody face-to-face. And then even if they live far away and you can't see them much, there is that face-to-face connection that you make. And then based on that, you can stay in touch by email or uh, by listening to recordings or whatever. But I think some face-to-face basis, to me, seems impossible to do without. Yeah. At least in the way that I like to practice. Yeah. I've noticed my analogy for that is I, I study the uh, shakuhachi, the Japanese bamboo flute. Mm-hmm. And I, before all of this uh, outbreak, I had uh, set up, my teacher lives in Berkeley and I live in uh, Sonoma County. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, I would do face-to-face lessons, but it's an hour drive each way. So we set up Zoom so we could do video lessons. Oh. And and it's interesting that that. And this happened before yeah, he started yeah. that. You know. So, so I would I would about say, a year. Yeah, I'd do like year. two lessons a month, and then a, a long workshop a month, uh, physically present, and then I'd do like an occasional meeting on Zoom. Now I'm doing like uh, five meetings a, w- a week on Zoom. And it's an interesting, interesting contrast because there's definitely something that's transmitted in the body-to-body presence that isn't yeah. there. And at the same time, because of just the convenience, my practice is deepened because we're able to like do this kind of repetitive focus on uh, a very subtle technique uh, over and over and over again. And well, greater frequency yeah, has a has greater an effect, frequency. I guess. It makes a difference. Yeah. So. So I suspect the analogies hold with uh, spiritual practice as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I think in all the Japanese arts, uh, there is a sense of the need for physical transmission, you know, face-to-face, body-to-body transmission. It's a very body-oriented yeah. tradition, and the subtlety of a person's presence is a lot of what the teaching is about. So I don't think we can... Now, in other traditions, it might not be as important possibly but certainly in zen and i know shakuhachi and, and other 
arts like that, which are infused with a lot of Zen spirit, you need to be face to face. But in your case, having had many years of face to face contact, then yeah. I think, of course, it's possible to dispense with it once the imprinting has actually occurred. Yeah, and we've we've noticed that in uh, 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 teaching contexts that if we actually have physical presence with someone uh, and then do remote modalities, that there's still some there's a connection yeah. there that uh, persists. Yeah. But but without that, that connection isn't quite uh, uh, yeah. isn't quite as deep. Yeah, there's something somewhat abstract about relating to an image on a screen, even though you know it's a person and there's a personal connection. At the same time, there's some level of abstraction that's hard to define, but yet it's there. Yeah. Well, shall we jump into the... Uh, uh, that, that was what yeah. I was just going to suggest. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that um, uh, caught us about the book uh, is the, uh, the foundation of imagination and the, the bringing in of imagination as a basis for understanding the way of the bodhisattva and the way of relating to spiritual practice in general, because mm -hmm. I think depending on the tradition, imagination is sometimes given a, a kind of a bad press right. uh, uh, because it's meant, it means something. Uh, and other traditions, like uh, the more like hermetic and the magical traditions, imagination is like the foundation for, uh, you know, the kind of the, creative expression of being. Mm -hmm. So is it, I was so I was just interested maybe, maybe we can start with uh Well, let me let me let me jump in here because you're yeah. you're getting into the substance of the book. I, I first want to get a comment on the um what I glancingly referred to at the very beginning of this conversation, which is that when I first I, I read the book, I don't know, it's probably 6 months ago. I I looked at it again before this conversation, but um there was the you know the there was no irony about the the main part of the title the world could be otherwise and and you start off with this wonderful story describing how um you know uh, f from the holocaust um describing an extreme example of how people can imagine the world to be otherwise and the effects that that has on other folks it's a wonderful story but um but now as i've come back to it of course um the world could be otherwise has has an ironic ring to it when um when we're experiencing a collective um tragedy essentially um uh, many many levels of that tragedy you referred to as ineffective and uh, bad leadership having its effects and and so on and so forth and so i'm i'm wondering if that if if my observation has is something that you have thought about at all sub you know in the last couple of months after the um arising of the pandemic i mean i know that i know you probably had to have finished writing this book two years ago or something like that mm -hmm. i'm imagining yeah, but when I wrote it, I, I was really writing it um, in a situation which, in my mind, was already an emergency. It was mm -hmm. catastrophe. I was thinking of uh, the environmental issue yeah. 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 and how we were doing nothing, really absolutely nothing, that was even close to what was needed. 
and that this was really a catastrophe. Um, I started it after the Trump election when uh, from that day forward, you know, it's been, everybody's been really freaked out about uh, a wrong turn that they feel the world has taken. So I, I really wrote the book. I, I was really a little bit like mad that all of a sudden everybody was convinced that they lived in a particular world. And I was trying to say to people, you know, you make the world you live in. Mm -hmm. the, world, the world is created by a combination of, you know, whatever you see around you and what you hear around you and your relationships and your perceptions, but also what comes from inside of you. You put it together uh, for yourself. So if the world sucks, in your view, don't depend on the world to change outside of you. Change your mind, change your heart, change your consciousness. Not to say that, you know, that's all you ever need to do. No, we need to change the world too. But don't start at a deficit. Don't start with a given world that you don't like. So the idea is that you, you can really be a bodhisattva and view your life as a bodhisattva life full of purpose and meaning. It doesn't matter how the conditions are outside of you. No matter what's going on, there's always something to do, some good to be doing for other people, some way to make the world better whether it's an emergency or not an emergency, have that vision in your mind, go forth with that, rather than just um, take at face value the world that's being handed to you in the press and in the mm -hmm. conversation in the country and so on. So that's what I was really reacting to more than anything else. So, but it's the, still true. And for me, the uh, world uh, in which and for which I was writing the book hasn't changed at all, you know, with the I see. pandemic. It's really, we were in an emergency before, we're in an emergency now, lives are being lost before, lives are being lost now. The, the future uh, catastrophe was looming before, it's looming now. If, if anything, the virus, to me, creates um, a stronger possibility because you couldn't imagine how we were going to get from this enthusiastic moment of business as usual, the economy is humming, everybody's employed, we're having a great time, the Dharma groups are doing great, the arts are thriving, everybody's doing great, except, of course, for the people who aren't, but never mind about them. We're doing great. Never mind about how we've got, we got to stop emitting carbon in the atmosphere. Who has time to think about that? And besides, it's all fake news. We don't believe in it. How would we ever get from there to what we need to do? There was no way. Now, there's a way because everything stopped, yeah. which is what we needed to do. We needed to stop everything. We were never going to decide to stop everything. That was never going to happen. But the virus made it happen. So now, I think, in a way, after this pause is over, things cannot return to the way they were before because economically, you don't just push a button and everything goes back to the way it was before. Economically, there's going to be big economic problems. And when there's big economic problems and the world suddenly come, goes off a cliff, then the opening is there to do things differently. So I'm hoping that now we will be forced to do things differently because honestly, 
before you could tolerate, I mean, I couldn't, but a lot of people could tolerate all the poverty, all the injustice, all the unfairness, and the environmental problems. You could tolerate it if you weren't, you know, if you read Fox News or whatever. Now, I think it will be impossible to tolerate for anybody. Your neighbors are going to be, you are going to be unemployed. Your neighbors are going to be unemployed. There's going to be no health care for everybody because they lost their job, you know, and the health care is in the job. So it may be that now is the moment when we have to do something, and everybody will agree. The whole thing shifts. So in that sense, um, if anything, as bad as it is, it creates a new possibility because if we don't do things differently from now on, it's going to be really, really ugly. If we thought it was ugly before, it's really going to be ugly now. So I'm hoping people will get that. Yeah, I, I agree. I, it's not clear how things could not change because yeah, there's going to be, change. yeah, there's going to be such disruption. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there has to be health care for people. There just can't not be, you know. That's going to have to be handled. And even, you know, this, these bills that they're passing, the Republicans are, I mean, you know, the bills are not the best, but the Republicans are sort of, you know, behaving like FDR or something, right? I mean, in these bills. Overnight, Universal passing these bills that are, the day before the virus, they would have said, are you kidding me? This, I'm not going to do anything like that. And the next day, unanimously they're doing it so things have to change perhaps are changing i'm hoping so got it so um um so let's get back to the topic of imagination which is yeah. really the central theme of the book i think and Stuart, I'll, I'll i'll hand it back to you because you were starting yeah. to ask a question i'm first i'm just interested why why you felt like imagination was a way to frame uh, the quest of the Bodhisattva, or the ideal of the Bodhisattva, and how, how did that, how, how was it that imagination really uh, came forward as a, a defining element here? Yeah, that's a good question. It's, it's something that I had been contemplating for a really long time before I started writing the book. And I don't know, maybe it was just the like I was saying earlier, my understanding that, well, for one thing, I'm, I'm defining imagination, attempting, I, I don't think I actually succeed in it, but I'm attempting in the book to define imagination in a different way from the way we conventionally define it. Conventionally, imagination is the opposite of reality. So on the one hand, there's what's real, and on the other hand, there's what's imaginary. And what's imaginary, by definition, is not real. And so if we validate imagination, what we're saying is, gee, we should have some imagined hopes so that we could then eventually make them real. So the function of imagination maybe is to give me some good ideas about changing reality through the use of my imagination. So imagination, for everybody's vocabulary, is the opposite of real. So I'm trying to say, and, and this comes from my work as a poet and, you know, a lot of reading, a lot of philosophy, Western philosophy, uh, you know, Heidegger, Wittgenstein, uh, Levinas, and many other thinkers who 
point out that imagination is not the opposite of reality. Imagination is a human function that creates reality. So in the book, I think I go back to Kant, who was the first one who said, it's not as if the brain and the human organism takes in a reality as we experience it. No, the human organism through the eyes and the ears and the, all the perceptual apparatus takes in data from something quote unquote out there, although we're not even sure what out there means, but it takes in data that is not the self. And then through our inner faculties, we shape that into a reality. Right. So for Kant, he was the one who said, well, we have these structures, you know, moral and perceptual and intellectual structures that create reality. And so I'm saying that those are our imaginative faculties. And those faculties have always been creating reality. So when we think we're not imagining things, we are. To get up in the morning, think that you're the same person you were yesterday, and go downstairs and make breakfast and go through your day is already an act of imagination. So for me, spiritual practice is the recognition that this is so, and then the beginning of cultivating that imagination so that you're not just operating on what's received already through the society, through the values, through the habits that you've received, but rather you're in some dynamic and creative dialogue with this inside yourself that's literally creating the world you're living in. So that's something that I've been you know, contemplating for many, many decades. And for me, spiritual practice has always been that. It's always been a way for me to cultivate my own inner capacities in a way that um, can line up with my desires and my values to create a world that I want to live in. So uh, my, my idea of imagination is a little bit different from, even in spiritual practice, you say, imagine these deities, or imagine these, I mean, in, in, in some forms of Buddhism, those imagined realities are also taken to be real, but real on another realm or another, on another level. But I'm, I'm meaning something slightly different from that. Well, it's, I mean, uh, uh, you actually have a section in the, in the first chapter entitled imagination is feeling for another yeah. and, and and among other uh, among the other resources you bring to bear in that section of the book um you uh, quote a uh, uh, shelley essay yeah. um which is the great secret of morals is love a going out of ourself and an identification with others the great instrument of moral good is the imagination so clearly you're drawing on different a different map of imagination. Uh, yeah, that's from the Defense of Poesy by, by uh, Shelley. And that's when he, at the end, the last line of that essay is, he says, uh, that's the very famous line, poets are the uh, unacknowledged legislators yeah. of the world. And that's what he means by that. He means that since poets cultivate the imagination, and since it's the imagination that gives us altruistic feeling for one another, Actually, people who are legislators trying to protect and create order in society are actually taking their cues 
from the people who worked at the imagination. Hmm. There's a, I, I was thinking in terms of what you were saying about the way we construct our reality and the, 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 the Kantian version, that, that also sounds very much like Yogacara, right? That yeah, the, exactly. And I, and I talk about Yogacara in there. Yeah. yeah. That toward the end of the book that, that, that basically that's the, uh, everything we receive that comes in are, we, we receive these kinds of, uh, data, but we construct a world that we live in. Right. And, and what's interesting with Im imagination in, in some traditions, I, I've heard it said that imagination is what connects us. Yes. And so we, we, through that act of, uh, we, we create a world in which we're connected. Yeah. Or we can create a world in which we're connected. Yeah. And I think there is something about imagination in the way that I'm thinking of it. And Shelley feels the same way that inherent in it is altruism and mutual identity because you know you tap into something beyond self-interest when you tap into the imagination i mean it's the experience of all great artists they feel like well this is not just me and what i think through the art that i'm working with i've tapped into some force of nature that is flowing through me and that force of nature is bigger than me it's, uh, i'm channeling something you know that's more fuller and more connected than, than I myself could possibly be as the atomized individual I think I am. So I think that's true, that imagination and compassion and love are, are connected. And then I make the point there that all human idealisms are essentially imaginary. You know, there's no such thing as love, there's no such thing as, um, you know, justice. These are somehow words and concepts that we project from our human feelings for one another. So, uh, you know, whether you have, whether, you, whether you're interested in the imagination or not, anybody who's interested in benevolence, justice, uh, and, and, and truth and things like that is really interested in imagination because it's the imagination that produces those ideas. There is no justice, let's say, for non-human creatures. You know, they flow with reality, but they don't have a concept of justice. That's the creation of the human imagination uniquely. Hmm. Yeah, so, um, I mean, one of the things you do uh, early in the book um, is sort of alternatively examine the strengths and weaknesses of different ideas and conceptions about imagination, this, this faculty of imagination. You know, early in my spiritual practice, I, I was told, or at least I read and imbibed the idea, not that I was told really, um, that uh, imagination has a downside, which is fantasy. Yeah, right. And, um, and there's a certain reality to that, because oh, yeah. If, yeah. If, you're, if you're directing your attention in a way that takes you away from the actual world, there are problems there. Yeah, and I, and I talk about that. I mean, yes, it's a great act of the imagination to imagine yourself uh, walking into a school and shooting down uh, all your teachers and fellow students. Yeah. And in order to carry that out, it takes a lot of imagination to figure out how to get the weapons and how to do all that. So, yeah, uh, and, and I try to use Coleridge's famous 
discussion of imagination as a way of distinguishing between what I would consider true imagination and distorted imagination. Mm -hmm. and, and distorted imagination I call fantasy. And what makes it fantasy and not true imagination is that it's distorted by our woundedness, it's distorted by our isolation, it's distorted by our un being unhinged, right? So when 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 a person is deeply wounded and unhinged uh, and out of touch with imagination as a force of altruism and connection, then they have, then they fantasize, can fantasize, you know, all kinds of um, very negative realities. So yeah, uh, just the capacity to imagine something is not always good. Of course not. Right, and um, and there's this. Um... Uh, contemporary corrective to that, it seems to me, um, which um, is has been abroad in Buddhist and other uh, spiritual circles now for for the last many decades, um, which is to just be here now. In other words, dwell in the moment and um, take your attention away from the sorts of fantasies that that uh, you're describing, whether they're benevolent or not. Um, and yet that's one of the things that I really, well, you know, in my own uh, uh, spiritual trajectory, there was a period when um, Stuart here um, directed my attention to the possibility of using imagination in a creative way in a spiritual context. And that was, something that I hadn't imagined. What I like about your book is that you, you really do go back and forth in, in looking at the, um, um, the ways that imagination can be productive and that, as you've been saying, it, uh, create, create our experience so that, so that when we tell ourselves that, that I'm, I'm just here, just now, it seems to me that it's easy to miss the point that just here, just now includes the, the creative acts that I have been engaged in, the habits that I've created around imagination in my life. Speak, speak to that, if you will. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is a, an interesting and important point um, because when you read some spiritual literature, and certainly it's in Zen, when you read some of the teachings of the Zen masters, it can certainly give you the impression that they're proposing a state of mind in which there is no imagination, no mediation whatsoever. You are directly perceiving the world as it is, unadorned, and you're not participating, you're just fully receiving. It sounds like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I actually don't think, uh, well, we get into language problems here. Let's put it this way. I actually don't think such a thing is conceivable or possible for a human being. Human beings will always have a human mind. We don't mm -hmm. not have a human mind. So to me, being here now in the immediacy of, of my present life, without my distortions, without my confusions, that too is an act of the imagination. 
I think it's a very mm. pure and beautiful act of the imagination. But it too, to me, is an act of the imagination. And, and now, with cognitive science, and also the last, I don't know, 50 or 75 years of, of uh, philosophy, I think it's pretty clear that uh, all our states of consciousness are mediated to some extent by languages, language and the structures of our mind. But the idea of a pure and unmediated consciousness, I think, is not really, um, is not really possible for human beings. However, um, awakening is possible. There is, there is a possibility that we could really overcome our woundedness and our confusion and our delusion and see all of that for what it is and live in the world with a kind of sense of wonder and love and overcome that, even though we would be living in the world as human beings in a world we imagine humanly. So to me, awakening, this, this, in other words, the, the concept of pure and unmediated reality, just be here now and all that, the fact that that is a fantasy to me doesn't make awakening not worthwhile. <laughs> it just changes what, how, you, how you think it. So, so just to, so I'm clear on what you're uh, uh, suggesting then, for me to be even present, not in my psychological distortions, but just yeah. present to the fact of my being in a body, being in the world, and being a human being, but without the mediation of my uh, psychological story, is still an imaginal act yeah, because because imagination is both um, uh, it both adds to and takes away. Exactly. Yeah. So so I have to I have to by imagination I have to essentially uh, tune down those distortions. And that's, well, you could say that the spiritual practice is an is is a process of purifying and honing your imagination. Yeah. And that when you really have your imagination in a beautiful flowing place, flowing with your life as it, as it impinges on you, then you can live an awakened life. Yeah. And, and Dogen has a beautiful, you know, uh, the, the, uh, this concept that maybe the Zen masters were teaching some sort of unmediated, pure, beyond language, form of awareness is something that Dogen in the 13th century already was complaining about. Oh, really? Said, yeah, he said, no, that's, any, any Zen master who's telling you that is wrong. And he has a famous, a wonderful fascicle uh, called Painting of a Rice Cake, where uh, he talks about this old Chinese phrase, you know, you, you can't eat the painting of a rice cake. You can only eat a real rice cake, you know. Mm -hmm. So this was apparently used by Zen masters to say, no, you know, Zen is the rice cake. Forget about the painted rice cake. We're getting for the getting to the real rice cake. And the real experience, mm -hmm. the experience is the only way. So Dogen writes this essay in which he takes them to task for this view and he says Actually, the only rice cake you can eat 
is the painting of a rice cake. <laughs> <laughs> because there are only painted rice cakes. There are no other kind. There's no other kind of rice cake than a painted rice cake. And that's exactly what I'm saying. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> that's nice. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, one of the features of, of uh, uh, the world could be otherwise is that, I mean, we've been, t we've been focusing on imagination uh, uh, and, and your discussions of that, which are throughout the book, of course, but you're using the lens of the um, perfections, the six uh, parameters in, in this book. Am I saying that right, by the way? Well, the word paramita? I mean, who knows how to say it right? I usually say it paramita. Paramita, okay. I hear people say it that way, but... Okay. Well, anyway, I thought you could give me the definitive right way to do it. But. Yeah, I'm afraid that I have nothing definitive about anything. So. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. But anyway, um, so so um, so one of the things I like about the book is is that breaking up your discussion of how to apply imagination to these concepts or goals in practice. Yeah. I, I found very um, it 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 allowed you to to really ground your discussion of imagination yeah. in particular ways. I was uh, so so. First, let me start by asking uh, why did you decide to use that lens for the book for your discussion of imagination in practice? Well, I think it's been I don't know how long it's been that I. I've really been emphasizing compassion in the Bodhisattva path. 20 years maybe I've been thinking that, uh, you know, if our practice is just about calming us down and making our lives more spiritually satisfying, I don't think that's sufficient, you know, especially mm -hmm. in an emergency world, right? We really we really have to care about one another. So I've been really obsessed with that, with the Bodhisattva path and the notion of being of benefit to others for quite a long time now. And so uh, I knew that I wanted to ground my book in the practice of being a Bodhisattva because the question of imagination is a theoretical question. Here, here our conversation has been theoretical. You know, what is the imagination? How does it work? And so on and so on. And that's, you know, worthwhile and important, and I, I like to think about stuff like that. But in the end, you know, it's what we do and how we are with one another that really counts, because that's the value of imagination. That's the value of this discussion is how does it transform our lives, and especially our conduct, the way we conduct our lives, the way we interact with one another. So I wanted to ground this in the path of altruism, in the Bodhisattva path, and uh, thinking of spiritual practice as an imaginative act, as a process of opening up and making your imagination more, more beautiful and more inclusive. And so to think of these six qualities of a Bodhisattva, six modes of working with the imagination, I think is a very powerful uh, discussion in Buddhism. It's, it's, to me, one of the beautiful um, contributions that Buddhism makes to world spirituality is the idea of a bodhisattva and 
the definition of the Bodhisattva path as the six parameters. Really and truly, there's so many ways in which all other spiritualities um, converge, you know, uh, and are in dialogue with that kind of a that kind of a path. So I, I just love the Bodhisattva path and wanted to wanted to. I really, I, I wanted to write a book about the six paramitas. And then I thought, well, I will ground it in my thinking about imagination because mm-hmm. the trouble is that that uh, spiritual practice always uh, falls into a piety, and perfectionism, mm-hmm. right? Right. People are always wanting to judge themselves poorly and then hold up, by contrast, some perfect way of being that they're going to now try to achieve and then always feel that they're falling short and get discouraged and but to me that's like missing the point you know it's not about being perfect and it's not about even being other than you are it's about your imagination so i wanted to reframe the whole bodhisattva path as a path of imagination and as a path of always being about who and where you are right now not about you you see the horizon you want to be more generous and more compassionate and more loving but you also see how you are now and you live your life from there always from there so when you describe the paramitas you translate that as perfections yeah and you make a point in the book that these that as perfections these are ideals that don't yeah. Aren't aren't things that we achieve? Like you check, you never check the box off. And right, exactly. I mean, the closest analogy I, I could come to is uh, artistic endeavor, where uh, a real artist never feels they're done. Exactly. Uh, it's always a, it's always refining. It's always this bubbles right, of right. refining. And I think it's precisely the same in spiritual practice. You know, just like an artist, a spiritual practitioner, uh, their art is their is their life. Their consciousness in their life, and just like an artist, they're in pursuit of the impossible dream of being a perfect human being that they know they'll never achieve, but they are committed to continuing to go in that direction forever and ever. So, um, so one of the uh, perfections is uh, um, ethical conduct, and and that, and and that's. It seems to me um, a place where you're, you're, this discussion that you've you've just um, referred to here of of how do you hold an ideal without judging your own achievement or absence of achievement or incomplete achievement of that. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so speak a little bit more about that, if you will, because I think, I mean, I, I've seen this, I've certainly seen it in myself, but I, I really see it in a lot of people who strive to improve their lives. And in the idea of improvement, um, find confusion, yeah. ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, in Zen, you know, the, the 16 Bodhisattva precepts, which include a lot of uh, matters of restraint, you know, no sexual misconduct, no intoxication, and so on and so on. Those seem like 
restraining rules. But when you hear Zen teaching about the precepts, the idea is that the precepts are actually not restraining rules. They are an effort to describe the spontaneous and joyful conduct of an awakened person. So it's not that an awakened person has to push and shove herself into perfection and thereby, thereby you know, cut off so many of her impulses and her ways of being, but rather that uh, she wants to get to, to the place where she can be spontaneously loving and wishing non-harm. Now, here's where it gets a little subtle and tricky because judgment or discrimination, which is another word for judgment, right, is required in ethical conduct. So I have to have self-judgment. I have to say, oh, I see that the way I'm behaving now is not good. I see that I've committed myself to a precept and I'm not following that precept now. So that's, that kind of judgment is really good because that way I can, I can get back on course and I can say to myself, well, I'm committed to being a Buddha the best I can in this lifetime. And I see that my behavior in this way, even though I kind of, I'm willful and I want to do this, I can see that it's not leading me in the right direction. So I have to make a judgment here. I'm going to have to stop that conduct. And the more I train myself, the more that judgment is not judgmental against myself. It's not about myself. It's about my commitment. I use my discriminatory mind and my self-judgment to help me to be a more beautiful person and live in the way that I want to live better and better and better. So there is a degree of discrimination and judgment, but it's not searing self-judgment. Oh my God, what a horrible person I am. No, I'm not a horrible person or a great person. I'm just a person committed to going forward and taking the next step. And I, that's good and that's bad. You know, on the one hand, I'm only a human being. So, boy, we're pretty pathetic and horrifying, we human beings. And that's me. That's me. You know, I mean, if this is a screwed up world, am I going to say, no, the world is screwed up. But I, on the other hand, I'm a pure Buddhist monk with precepts, and I'm not like that. No. If the world is screwed up, I'm equally screwed up exactly the way the world is. So I'm not going to be a perfect person until the world is perfect. But that's not a searing self-judgment. That is just me. Right. This is, I'm a human being, and I'm accepting everything that goes with being human. And I've made a commitment to take the next step. Every day, always, one more step in the direction. And I know where I'm going because... I see way, 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 way far up ahead the perfect human being that all human beings have imagined. And I've imagined it too. And I'm taking the next step in that direction. So that's ethical conduct for a bodhisattva. We need to take a short break at the hour. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodman. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Soketsu Norman Fisher about his 2019 book, The World Could Be Otherwise, Imagination and the Bodhisattva Path. 
Fisher is an American poet, writer, and Soto Zen priest, teaching and practicing in the lineage of Shinru Suzuki. He is a Dharma heir of Sojin Mel Weitzman, from whom he received Dharma transmission in 1988. We'll be right back. Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined in the following by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. We now continue with our pre-recorded conversation with Zoketsu's Norman Fisher about his 2019 book, The World Could Be Otherwise, Imagination and the Bodhisattva Path. Fisher is an American poet, writer, and Soto Zen priest, teaching and practicing in the lineage of Shinru Suzuki. He is a Dharma heir of Sojin Mel Weitzman, from whom he received Dharma transmission in 1988. So there's a, uh, an analogy I can think of uh, from on the engineering side that uh, a rocket in its travel is never going, never pointed in the right direction. It's always veering off. And, uh, yeah, right. There's all a constant. A rocket yeah. that is exactly going true is always being adjusted every time. Right. And that, and that and it seems like having what we're cultivating is that kind of internal yeah. uh uh control mechanism that that doesn't have to be a a statement about a a sense of self. It's just a oh exactly. yeah, I, I need to and, correct. And it's, and it's in the body and in the heart so that it's I don't have to even think about it. You know, for me in my practice at this point I sometimes hurt people uh, unintentionally, but if I ever say uh, something that is even slightly hurtful and I become aware of that, I don't have to uh, have a conversation with myself about whether or not that was hurtful and I should just said it, should have said it, should have said it. I just feel bad right? mm-hmm. immediately. I have an immediate sense, oh no. That's not what I want to do. That's not how I want to be. It's very immediate. And I correct myself immediately without any deliberation or self-judgment, you know, because I've trained myself over time. And it's not that I've got this down perfectly, but I'm better than I was for sure. So that's so that uh, I'm going to call that discrimination versus yeah. uh, versus judgment. And that discrimination, it seems to me, from what you're saying and my own experience is it emerges out of an awareness of, of some sense in the body that um, something's gone amiss. Yeah. That a course correction needs to happen. And that, and that, and having that feeling in the body is the fruit of some training and practice over time. It takes a while. But you sure. Yeah, that's sure. So you, uh, in the since we're talking about ethics, um, you touch on a subject that's uh, come up in our some of our conversations with our mutual friend Ken McLeod about you know how do you when you say that uh, the uh, paramita of ethical conduct is is in itself empty, and when we're dealing with a, a path that uh, uh, articulates very in a very sophisticated way the emptiness of uh, self-nature. Mm-hmm. What does ethics mean uh, when there's no self? Mm-hmm. 
And I, I wonder if you could speak to that, because you, you address that in the book, but that's that's a it, it's kind of like a, a conundrum in this in this kind of practice. And I think that's an important uh, distinction to draw out. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that uh, in Buddhist uh, practice, there's a sense that, um, as I said before, the spontaneous conduct of a Buddha is beautiful ethical conduct. So ethics, even though all dharmas are empty and there's nobody to hurt, nobody who can produce hurting and no hurting, the spontaneous conduct of someone who realizes that is non-harming, is nurturing and loving and caring. Mm -hmm. So when I'm willfully, you know, favoring myself, then I can pretty much rest assured that I have gone off course, uh, that I've lost, that I've, that I've been, you know, captured by my egotistical need to be important, to be perfect, to be a good Buddhist or something like that. And I have to see that that's the, that's shining light on the walls of my cage. Yeah. I guess there's another aspect of this that, I, 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 uh, that you mention at a number of points uh, in in several of the paramitas uh, that also this means that there's no um, there's no like rule book or uh, a code book to know that in this situation this is the ethical uh, act that this is, that this is something that has to arise spontaneously uh, by virtue of it essentially being empty. And yeah. that that it is really improvisation in its highest form, rather than a adherence to some sort of moral code. Right. It's it's interesting because it's both and in the sense that there is certainly a moral code. Non-harming um, is the main main principle. But how you practice that moral code. Is, is nuanced in any given situation in all of its complexity. So there, there can't be a set of simple rules uh, that are obvious to anybody uh, because the whole universe, when you think about it, literally speaking, in any given moment that arises, the entire universe comes to bear on that moment. You know, this moment of us talking here over the Zoom couldn't have arisen without the entire human history and pre-human history of the galaxies and the stars being formed and so on and so on. So all of that is here in this moment. And so my acting in accord with uh, the Dharma, in accord with ethical conduct, is unique in this moment. So like in Zen, it's, it's interesting. You know, we we never... It seems like people very seldom, if ever, talk about she broke a precept, he broke a precept. You know? We might in ourselves, in our own minds, feel good or bad about our own conduct. And we might complain to somebody else, I don't like what you just said to me, or I don't like what you just did. But we never reference the precepts as if to say, I, can, I know that you broke that precept. Because I wasn't there, and I am not you, and I'm not in the complexity of your life and your situation. I know that what you did upset me. I know that what you did 
uh, I want you to apologize or whatever, but I can't really say I, as an arbiter of morality, now tell you that you've done an immoral act. Mm. I can't do that. Well, that's a strength, uh, um, it seems to me, and um, because it leaves open that more sensitive gauge uh, of discrimination as opposed to judgment. I mean, I mean, even even you know, as you're saying, non-harming, even even that gauge, you know, it, it, at least so far we haven't we haven't quite reached the capacity to um, just um, shovel molecules into our mouths and be able to to sustain our human bodies. We're harming carrots and whatever um, when when we eat. So. Um, if we were using judgment, we'd have to feel bad all the time. Right, exactly. But, um, you know, one, one of the more interesting uh, teachings that I was exposed to about this is that, is that um, to be ingested by, another, to ingest another being is, is actually to meet that other being in a certain kind of way and share something with that being. Um, I mean, the, the tricky part is, is how did, how did, how did you get your mouth around that other being, <laughs> et cetera? Right. So, um, yes, so like you're pointing out, we can't live without creating some harm. Right. Right. So, so therefore we have to make our lives, uh, lives that, um, contribute and, and take that being that we've whose life has gone as a, as a whose life has been a sacrifice to make our life possible. We have to take the goodness of that being sacrificed and do something with it. We have that obligation. Yeah, and, and life is a great obligation to be good. I think. Well, and that's where that's that's where we can recursively bring imagination back into this uh, the. Uh, um, description here because because that's one of the principal paths if not the principal path that I think you're pointing to here yeah yeah right when we with imagination we then can see that um, you know the life that we imagine ordinarily we're living is way too small mm. and one-dimensional for our actual lives and what you just brought up is a good example you know we have lunch and breakfast and dinner all the time we think about going to the store and maybe how much it costs and whether it's healthy or not but do we think about how these beings have been sacrificed for our benefit and what does that mean for us in terms of my conduct in this right in this moment right now that's actually a fact right? yeah. it's actually a real fact of nature that's a be here now fact <laughs> and yet it's not something that is part of our experience not something that's part of our reflection about who we are and what we're doing and what our obligations are as, as human beings so to cultivate imagination as a bodhisattva is to take all of this into account and see what a vast and, and basically unknowable life we're living every single day 
every single moment of every single day and how much has gone into that life and how much we are contributing and communicating and, and connecting all the time. Yeah, the, uh, um, um, the meeting of the carrot and me is something that um, has this immense possibility. I think that's, that's kind of where that teaching, where my teacher was directing my attention. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's why uh, I never eat anything without a blessing. Mm -hmm. Because even though I do it all the time and it's become rote, right, and I'm not so sure that I think about, about it when I'm saying it, but at least I say it. And when I say it, the point of it is I'm reminding myself, wow, you know, how could it be that I turn a carrot, you know, into a poem? <laughs> How is that possible? You know? That 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 these things that I'm eating turn into human energy and they flow through my body and my mind and it turns into this activity. That is, if anything, is a sacred miracle. There it is. Hmm. Every time I eat, I try to remember to acknowledge the mystery and the sacredness of that act of eating, which is tragic, as you're pointing out, it's tragic, it's kind of like horrifying, it's, it's a miracle, it's beautiful, and it obligates me to a life. Mm -hmm. So I try to say something before every meal to remind myself of that. Yeah, uh, we, we, we've done that as well, and I suffer uh, from doing it by rote all too yeah. often. Yeah. Well, that's that's okay. I, I think, in a way, I think it's good to do it by rote. You know, it means it means that you it's so ingrained in you, you don't even have to think about it. There's something good about that. Yeah, but but it's also an occasion to slow down a little bit too, and yeah, uh, and just uh, take appreciation because often for myself, um, eating is sort of like uh, you know uh, the inconvenient necessity between point A and point B. You know. <laughs> in a busy day and uh that that's this world that suddenly had to uh, uh come to a stop for a moment right 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 i wanted to um ask about the uh, paramita of patience uh, mm -hmm. uh because that as i was reading the book and i i just i just read the book so for me uh it was completely infused with the uh, zeitgeist yeah, yeah. um right. and uh Patience seemed like a, a, a really, a, you know, it's funny because my disposition would be to like to want to go to the meditation and the uh, understanding part of the book, <laughs> but I actually found that patience was the probably uh, the most, the part of the book that spoke to me most uh, just because of the current moment. And I'll and, just jump in and add that that was one of my favorite chapters of the book yeah. as well uh, in a different zeitgeist moment. Yeah. And, and I think the, the, what I appreciated about it was, I mean, you, you bring up several levels and several teachings about that. Uh, and, and, uh, but as a prescription or an offering for how people meet the current moment, uh, patients on many, many different levels, it really seems to uh, resonate strongly. So, uh, maybe you could speak a little bit about how, how you saw that, that particular chapter unfolding as you wrote it. Cause it seemed, it seemed, seemed like meaty, very meaty. Yeah. Well, I often, 
talk about patience, and I say that it's my favorite of the six paramitas because um, if you don't have patience, uh, you can practice all the other paramitas perfectly until something goes wrong. <laughs> and then, if you have no patience, it's all out the window. You know? Patience is the is the uh, capacity to sustain practice, right? Even when it doesn't go well, when, when there are difficult things happening. And I think that when you practice the paramita of patience, you you flip your mind from a mind that says, I really want everything to go beautifully, and I'm working hard to make sure that's the case. I don't want anything to go wrong, which is how we all think, right? You flip your mind from that to um, naturally, as a living being, I want to, you know, work toward things going well, but I'm looking forward to all the things that inevitably will go wrong, including sickness, old age, and death, because those are the things that will really uh, give me the strength to drive my practice deeper mm -hmm. and increase my appreciation for life and for other beings. And so when those things happen, I'm not surprised, I'm not resistant, I'm not upset. I immediately realized, oh, good. Now, because I didn't plan on it. I, I didn't look for it. I didn't plan on it. But now it's brought me up short, and I have to turn around and really look at my life and go deeper. This is forcing me to. And I, and I really hope that collectively this coronavirus is going to do that to us collectively because we were rushing along, making sure everything was going just right, not really noticing collectively that it was not going right. And now we have to stop and face these difficulties. So patience is that. Patience is developing the habit of instead of, instead of giving difficulty your back, turning around and giving difficulty your face and turning to face whatever it arises. And, and our um, inborn biological um, need to run away from difficulty is very strong. So we all initially want to prevent difficulty or run away from it or deny it. Denial is very powerful and sometimes necessary. But ultimately, uh, we want to be able to have the practice of turning toward difficulty and realizing that that's what, what strengthens our compassion. And compassion is the most important thing for bodhisattvas, is caring for others. Mm -hmm. We receive our own suffering. You know, when I'm sick, I know that now I'm getting to experience the sickness that millions of people are now at this moment also experiencing. Now I can be in solidarity with them. When I lose something, I get to be in solidarity with all those people who have lost something. And my compassion is increased by every loss and every difficulty. And so naturally, as a biological being, I'm trying to prevent any of those things from happening. But I know they will. And when they do, hopefully I'll be able to overcome my initial dismay and confusion and turn around to face the difficulty. It, it humbles me and that humility is to me the essential ingredient in spiritual practice. So that's why patience is so great. 
Hmm. That's interesting. Stuart has a uh, formulation that he came up with years ago, which we've used in many contexts, uh, called follow your dread, yeah. as opposed to follow that's, your bliss. That's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, I, but I really like the, the point you just made about um, the, the aspect of humility being so, so central yeah. to this practice, to, to, to the practice of patience, because, because it is, um, we, we, we cultivate the illusion of being in control of our lives yeah. all too readily. Hmm. And then when, as you say, when, when we're, we're brought up short, um, humility helps us actually look at what, what's happened and what, and how we've innately um, uh, projected an illusion of control onto yeah. what's been going on. And, and usually it works that way, right? You, you get, you get going with your brilliance. <laughs> One right. brilliant thing after another. <laughs> so all of a sudden you trip on a banana peel and it reminds you, oh, whoops, I'm a brilliant after all. And maybe that's what's going on in the world, right? We've been yeah. Going along, look how brilliant we are. I mean, my God, look at this video game. Did you ever, <laughs> did you ever see an image that sharp before? I mean, look at that. Look at all the things that we can do and all the ways we're so powerful. And then whoops. See a tiny little, little virus that nobody can even see, right? It doesn't even have a brain. It isn't even a living being exactly, right? This tiny little virus, all it's doing is its duty, right? It's like doing its biological duty to preserve its life just the same way that we're doing that. And, and it knocks us all down. And we literally get up and we say, whoops. I guess we weren't so brilliant after all. Yeah. I mean, there's a, uh, a billion different viruses and most of them, uh, you know, bounce off us and fall to the ground. But this, this one was just, was the perfect key for the, to unlock the, uh, uh, current madness of society. Yeah. Well, it's, um, but that, but what, what's so, what's so perfect about it, it seems to me is, not just that it has created a way to stop, uh, so, you know, in, in, in the fourth way tradition that we come out of, there's something called the stop exercise, where people are um, engaged in a, in a work project, a bunch of them usually, and, and some a leader will at a completely unexpected moment say stop, and the idea is to freeze. In place and just be present to and be exactly present to what's what's what going, going on. on inside That's and outside. Right. 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 So, so, yeah. so, but you know, for all that, the regrettable, and 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 horrible experiences and deaths going on, it's also it's not like the Black Death. It's not killing fifty percent of the population or something like that. Yeah. But it is. It is, and, and so when I call it, when I say that there's a perfection about this, it, um, it's a gentle, relatively speaking, a gentle um, imperative to stop. And that's, that's, that's something to be grateful for. Yeah. 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 And in that same chapter, you have a, I think a, a very interesting discussion about anger and 
that resonated for me again because I've I've been uh, going through some of the things that you described at the uh, outset of our discussion about you listen to the news and the news now is so it's so interestingly polarized that depending on what you listen to you'll get one view that will make you mad in one way then you can re get another view that'll make you mad in a different way and and it's 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 like the impressions that are coming from the media are continuing to try to accentuate this uh, uh, just internal turmoil that people have. And I was getting caught up into that for a while. And, and I really, and, and I think what you pointed to that I really appreciated was the, you know, if you react in anger, you're not going to see beneath the anger. And what you describe as beneath the anger is the uh, the uh, grief that and the fear that's there. And if we can rest there patiently, then that 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 can move and that that can yeah. teach us something that we need to see. But if we don't, then we're just going to continue to be um, keeping ourselves kind of in this uh, uh, state of agitation. Yeah. Right. I mean, sometimes I think I also talk about how sometimes there's a virtue in anger. It tells us something about what we care about. It tells us a lot about ourselves. And sometimes on a social level, uh, when people get angry, they agitate for social change. And sometimes that their anger and their actions taken out of anger is a necessary ingredient in bringing about social change. So I don't think there's a way you can sort of have a universal blanket dismissal yeah. of anger. But yeah, for the individual, um, certainly when you get angry, if you then grab hold of your anger and affirm it and decide you're going to build on it and build your conduct on it, well, this is really a bad, you know, path because that's where vengeance comes from and, and the need to, you know, do harm to other people. And, and it just doesn't seem like we can do harm to other people without that harm not going on. You know, you know yeah. if I could kill the bad guy and that's the end of the story, well, maybe I should think about that. But it's never the end of the story. It's never the end of the story. Violence brings more violence, you know. Anger brings more anger. So I think we all have enough experience in life to be able to ascertain that that's just true. Thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, what you say is undeniable. And at the very beginning, you, you pointed out that, that a blanket um, uh, prohibition on anger or, or making it wrong um, does um, prevent us from using it occasionally in a productive way. And, and as an example, you know, I'll say that that you know, I've been I've been I helped create this uh, spiritual bookstore project um, that our um, spiritual community has been working on for 17 and a half years. And when when it looked as if I mean, when I when it really sort of sunk in a few weeks ago that oh, this could imperil the continuation of that project, I definitely went to bed and I was feeling you know anger was coming up 
for me. Not just anger, but but that was certainly one one thing. And 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 um, but I liked what you said about it makes you it it can help you realize what's important to you. Yeah. And that and then when I saw something along those lines, then I could you know I was able to let it go because it it, it served a purpose for me there to to uh, remind me that I don't I don't want to be continuing this project as uh, in a mechanical way mm-hmm. I want to be I want it to be uh, vivifying and the and and the arising of the anger helped remind me of that mm-hmm. yeah and sometimes you can use the energy of the anger you can transmute it into energy to go forward with what you want to do. Right. You can realize, oh, I'm angry now because, you know, what I want to do is being thwarted. Uh, and let me take that anger and turn it around and turn it into energy to further my, what I'm trying to do here because I know it's good. Let me, let me take that energy. Usually anger is a negative energy in the sense that I want to kill that guy. <laughs> I'm angry with that person. I want to, they, they really bother me. Well, that's not going to take me anywhere. Right. I could transmit, transmute the anger that I feel against somebody or something, then I can do something positive. Yeah, I think the where where this hit landed with me, particularly in the concept of uh, imagination, was reflecting on the challenge of how we respond to this moment in terms of the opportunity to imagine a uh, a different world. Mm-hmm. And what I saw from the anger chapter was more that, you know, if we, if we locate our, if we imagine from the anger, then there's, it's going to be colored by these people are wrong. These corporatists are wrong. The oligarchs are wrong. The Trump administration is wrong. And as soon as we go there, we essentially reify that because we're, we're sort of in reaction to something that uh, is just another illusion, but we make it real. Right. And, 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 and what I kind of got from this was that there's a possibility to be affirmative uh, in a, uh, a positive way, just affirmative to imagine a possibility and to lead from that mm-hmm. and not lead from others are wrong, but lead from yeah. kind of in the spirit of uh, this is a course correction. So how do we, how do we uh, make the course uh, uh a better direction because we all actually want a better direction for each other. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because um, this thing about others are wrong. When you think about it a little bit, you realize that part of uh, the others are wrong thought that I have is my image, which is also emotional, emotionally tinged, of who those others are. Right. And so it's not only like I have a moral disagreement with these others. Mm-hmm. It's not, I really don't like them. Those are mixed up together. It's impossible to tease them apart. And then you think a little further and you think, so how well do I know them? <laughs> how, 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 how far have I walked in their shoes? What if I were born where they were born? And, and went through the institutions that they went through and did the work that they did and had the associations that they did. 
would I feel differently about them if I had gone through that? Of course I would. I have no idea who they are. What am I disliking about them? What I'm disliking is an imaginary character that I've created based on a little bit of information that I've gleaned from here and there. And I've created a whole impression in my mind of a person or persons or class of people that I really, really don't like. So now I can have a real disagreement with that class of people or person. And I can feel that I'm right about that and I can affirm my position. But I don't have to think that I know who they are. Mm -hmm. Or have a have a, car a cartoon character in my mind that I did, that I dislike, fueling my moral quibble, or more than a quibble, maybe it's a very significant moral difference. I think what goes on in the divisive world is that we have cartoon figures of each other, and we really don't like those cartoon figures we have of each other, and we are completely convinced that those cartoon figures are the, are who the people are, and. Um, we go on that way and, you know, whatever actual significant disagreements we may have actually get lost in the process of our just taking pot shots at the cartoon figures of one another that we have mutually created. Yeah. And that's what's going on now in the world. We can't get anywhere because there's almost nothing at issue. We're so busy having issues with our imaginary cartoon characters that we can't even get to this point. Well, that, that uh, um, brings me to uh, something, a, a, a chapter heading and a, a, a point you make towards the end of the book in the Perfection of Understanding chapter. Your, uh, uh, the chapter heading is, um, or, or subsection heading is, Emptiness, Self-Reflection, and Humor. <laughs> and um, and you say on page 188, if we're going to take in the entire mass of human suffering with loving concern, we better see the humor in it so we can hold it lightly. I think this is a really important point, and, and maybe you can expand on that a bit for, for our listeners, because I, I just... Uh, I. <laughs> I don't underline in books, but if I if I did, that would be one. <laughs> well, I think in that discussion, uh, I talk about the inherent sense of irony that is built into the teachings uh, of emptiness in, in Buddhism. Yeah. And the sixth paramita is the, is the perfection of wisdom, and wisdom specifically means the wisdom that sees the empty nature of all dharma. So that means that things neither exist nor do not exist. That's what emptiness means. We can't say nothing exists. Well, it's true, nothing exists, but we can't leave it at that. Also, things exist. But wait, they don't exist. That's really true. They don't exist. All of this that we're seeing in front of us doesn't really exist. But wait, it does exist. So that paradox of things. In fact, that's the meaning of existence. What's the meaning of existence? Non-existence. There's no existence without non-existence, right? So 
existence means, well, now we're all of a sudden like in a joke or something, right? Even though it's totally true and seriously true. But from the point of view of our language and our human sensibility, it's a kind of a joke. It's, it's, it's paradoxical and it's ironic. So I think we always have to maintain a sense of humor, especially in spiritual practice, because, you know, deadly serious spiritual practice is really not the worst thing there is. <clears throat> so you have to have a sense of humor and you have to realize that that sense of humor is built into the nature of reality. You know, it's built into the way things are and the way things go. Um, I was a little bit not feeling well the other day and I was fooling around on Netflix trying to find something to watch. And I watched this movie. It was really a bad movie. I couldn't get through it. But it was uh, called The Death of Stalin. Oh, I, I did see that. <laughs> yeah, and it was a comedy, you know. I thought it was a stupid comedy. But, you know, it was a comedy about, like, this horrible person, Stalin, and it was all about how scared everybody was of him and how everybody was, you know, so ridiculous in their imaginations trying to deal with this person who was so autocratic and so lethal. And it was, and, and, it, and it is true that, I mean, like, there's something really funny about a person who, like, behaves as if they're God when that person is going to be wiped off the face of the earth in five minutes you know, just because they're a human being. And they go around as if they were so great. And they're like nothing. They're going to be wiped away. They're powerless to do anything about the end of their lives. The only thing that matters, they can't do anything about it. And they're going around as if they were the, like the most powerful, most feared person in the world. And everybody around them is so serious about this. It's absurd. The exercise of human power for selfish ends is an absurdity. It's ridiculous to observe it. It's ridiculous, even though people are going around killing other people and all that, and that's not funny. Nevertheless, the whole proposition is an absurdity. Human selfishness and greed is absurd, given the fact that everything you grab, you don't keep. <laughs> you know? right. I'm going around buying up all the property and my bank account is giant, but I'm going to be reduced to like a piece of flesh eaten by worms in a little while. And what's going to happen? All I mean, you know, it's, it's totally ridiculous. It's ridiculous and it's pathetic. And, and, and people, to me, honestly, people who live on those absolutely absurd assumptions are to be deeply pitied because their hearts, their minds, their souls are in great jeopardy, right? Because they're not seeing what's real. They're not seeing who they are. They're not seeing, they don't understand what love is. Terrible. And they go on in that way. Yeah, that, uh, in the paragraph that I just uh, quoted a sentence of yours from, uh, just before that uh, sentence, you, you reference um, 
the, the, the chapter that you wrote on uh, the first uh, paramita, uh, generosity. And, and you say, um, well, uh, and if you go back to the beginning of that chapter, there's this discussion of attitude. So that's why attitude is relevant to humor. Humor is um, part of what we learn, how we learn to be flexible in our attitudes. But um, as we're getting close, closer to the end of our conversation here, I can't help but ask you to um, uh, sketch for our listeners the story that you begin the book with. It's such a powerful beginning to the book. Um, and it's, uh, it's illustrative of precisely this, this attitude of, uh, oh, I can change this, this point that I can change attitude and the world changes. Yeah. Would you, would you, would you do that and talk about it a little bit? Sure. Yeah. It's a story about uh, the poet, Robert Desnos, who's a great French surrealist poet. <clears throat> and it's a Holocaust story, as you mentioned at the beginning. Desnos was a young man at this time. And so he was, he was also Jewish. So uh, when he was French, so when the Nazis uh, took over France and set up a puppet government, Desnos, along with a lot of other young people, went underground and uh, fought against the Nazis. And he was captured. And because he was a Jew, he was sent to the concentration camps. So this story takes place on a day when he and a bunch of other prisoners were selected what they called it, selection, to be taken to the uh, ovens and the showers where they would be gassed and then burned. So they get on the truck. And of course, no one tells them where they're going, but they're quite aware. And so they get on the truck in a rather uh, subdued and somber state of mind, and they say nothing. <clears throat> they make the ride from the camp to the killing grounds. They get off the truck very, very slowly, very somberly, one by one. Everybody knows what's going on, including the guards. And the guards also fall silent, maybe out of some respect and awe for what they're about to do. And they're marching across the yard in single file. And all of a sudden, one of the men in line, as if he's suddenly struck by a happy thought, turns around, grabs the palm of the man behind him, and sticks his nose down into man, to the man's palm as if he's reading. He's a palm reader, it seems. And he gets very, very excited and very, very happy. You can see this in his body language. Oh, my God, I've never seen such a long life long. What a life you're going to have. Children, creativity. You must be an artist. You're going to have wonderful art. And Oh, my goodness. I, this is the most wonderful life. I'm so happy for you. And nobody knows what to make of this. It seems like so ridiculous. Nobody knows, is this guy crazy? What is he talking about? But the people in the line, they just can't help themselves. And one by one, they're putting out their hands for him to read their palms, and everyone is the same thing. 
differently, but long life and happiness and family and prosperity and joy and delight. And this is, the line breaks up and now it's a circle of a crowd around this guy who's reading the palms and everybody's happy and joyful and clapping each other on the back and the guards are standing there thinking to themselves, what? What? Because they had been living in this imaginary world. In the imaginary world that they had been living in, it was a normal and a reasonable everyday thing to do. March men across a yard into showers where they would be gassed, bodies put into ovens. This was something that they had imagined was normal and reasonable to be happening every day. Now, all of a sudden, this reality was pierced, and they did not know what to think. So they kind of looked at one another and shrugged their shoulders. Being confused as they were, they didn't know what else to do but to lead the men back onto the truck. Chuck turned around, went back to the barracks, and it is a fact that Zethnos was not executed, he was not killed in the camps. He was not killed that day. He remained in the camps, he was liberated at the end of the war, and he did not die in Auschwitz. Now, I don't say this in the book, but here's the thing that's really important. In a way, that story is too good. I think the story would be better, not for them, but as a story, if all that happened, and in the same spirit, and in the same frame of mind, with the same joy, and the same happiness, and the same confidence in their future, they had walked to the showers and died. And you know what? There's no doubt in my mind that there were many faithful Jews, not secular Jews, but religious Jews, who did go to their death in that way, with prayers on their lips, and a sense in their hearts that they would be going to meet their maker, and that this wouldn't have happened to them, if there weren't a divine plan for that for to be that way. And they probably did die with their imaginative hearts opening, opening them up to not the tragedy of their death, but the beauty of them. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the Holocaust was beautiful. And I'm not saying that we should be viewing what happened there as anything other than a tragedy. I'm just saying that, yes, on the one hand, the imagination can transform reality in a beautiful way. On the other hand, even when reality turns out to be something very, very negative, and it must be that way, and we cannot prevent it. Even then, the imagination, you know, in the heart, can always give us meaning and beauty, even when things go very, very, very awry. I think the imagination is that powerful. Hmm. Well, that that actually gives a interesting connection for imagination that uh, imagination can be our source of meaning. Exactly. That's exactly it. And meaning, you know, why would we need any meaning? Why would we need meaning? Why don't we just need lunch? Period. 
but but we need meaning, right? Yeah. Because but, why is that? Is there any meaning? There isn't any meaning, but we need meaning. And we have to make meaning. It's our just as you say, it's our imagination that makes meaning. And we need that because we're human. This is the thing about being human. We can't have a meaning. We, we as I often say, human being is the only creature on the planet capable of living a meaningless life. Right? No, an ant cannot live a meaningless life. Uh, and no, no, no other creature can live a meaningless life. An ant cannot have a meaningless life. A deer cannot have a meaningless life. A, a mouse or a rat, their lives cannot be meaningless. Only our lives can be meaningless. And it's the imagination that makes meaning. And we have to have meaning, one way or the other. Somebody might say, I don't know about meaning, I don't know. But, but somewhere in them, there's a sense that their life is meaningful. Otherwise, you can't get out of bed in the morning. You can't yeah. live your life without some sense of meaning, however buried it may be. It's got to be that. I mean, that was the discovery Viktor Frankl was so famous for, and yeah. yeah, again in Auschwitz, that uh, it was the people that had meaning. And it really didn't matter what that meaning was. That's but right. the people that had meaning were the people that uh, survived. Right. You know, I, I was so influenced by that book years ago, and I just bought it again. And when I haven't read, I haven't reread it, but I want to reread it because, uh, yeah, that's exactly what what it is. I think. Yeah. And and so to me, that's the spirituality. To me, anything that gives meaning, anything that takes us beyond, you know, our self-centeredness and our, you know, the fulfillment of our egotistical or animal needs, is spirituality. So you know, if we're born. If we die, if we want to have love in our lives, if we want to have a sense of meaning and purpose, then we're basically doing spiritual practice. And we have to do spiritual practice of some sort. It doesn't have to be formal. It doesn't have to be connected to any of the religious traditions. There's many advantages, of course, to be connected in that way. But whatever it is, we have to have something like that. Otherwise, I don't think we survive as human beings. And I don't know if it would be worth surviving if we didn't have that. Yeah. Well, thank you, uh, Norman. This has been a meaningful conversation, and um, it is uh, much appreciated. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today on The Mystical Positivist. I've had a great time. Me too. Me too. Really nice to meet you guys and to talk to you. Thank you. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Soketsu Norman Fisher, about his 2019 book, The World Could Be Otherwise, Imagination and the Bodhisattva Path. Fisher is an American poet, writer, and Soto Zen priest, teaching and practicing in the lineage of Shunru Suzuki. He is a Dharma heir of Sojun Mel Weitzman, from whom he received Dharma transmission in 1988. In two weeks on The Mystical Positivist, Zoketsu Norman Fisher returns to join us in conversation with Tibetan Buddhist teacher Ken McLeod, after learning Tibetan, Ken translated for his teacher, Kalu Rinpoche, and helped to develop Rinpoche's centers in North America and Europe. In 1985, Kalu Rinpoche authorized Ken to teach and placed him in charge of his Los Angeles center. Faced with the challenges of teaching in a major metropolis, he began exploring different methods and formats for working with students. He moved away from both the teacher-center model and the minister-church model and developed a consultant-client model. Ken is the founder and director of unfetteredmind.org. He is the author of Wake Up to Your Life, Discovering the Buddhist Path of Attention, The Great Path of Awakening, An Arrow to the Heart, Reflections on Silver River, 
and his most recent book, A Trackless Path. Tune in for that show on Saturday, May 9th from 4 to 6 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Thank you again for joining us for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.